And we turn tonight once again to two friends who've been here before, both of them eminent contributors to the general uh, scholarly realm of linguistics and structural linguistics. They are Frederick Schwink and Jason Merchant. Frederick Schwink is professor of German languages and literatures at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And Jason Merchant is professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago. Gentlemen, I've got a quotation which I've just encountered, which seems to me a wonderful text, almost an epigraph for the conversation we might begin right now. It's from Aldous Huxley, who says, Thanks to words, we've been able to rise above the brutes, and thanks to words, we've often sunk to the level of demons. How does that strike you? Well, it reminds me of something from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where it's claimed that uh, the the Babelfish, which can uh, translate any language mm -hmm. into any other form of language, has led to more and bloodier conflicts than anything in the history of history itself. Um, without communication, we can't argue. We can get nastier than the brutes that, to wh whom we supposedly transcend through the use of language. Gorillas might, gorillas in fact are rather sweet and, and, and passive, uh, but uh, uh, bonobos are sometimes kind of aggressive, but we can get nastier than bonobos because we've got language to insult one another with. Right, sure. We can uh, we can do a lot more things than the, the animals can do. Uh, we may be not unique in many of the other characteristics, but it does seem that uh, our language abilities uh, does separate humans entirely uh, from uh, other animals. And that's the first part of the very quotation from Huxley. Thanks to words, we have been able to rise above the brutes. Uh, we sometimes wonder, don't we, what if the larynx of uh, the high apes had sunk lower, uh, as ours seems to have done about 150,000 years ago, according to one line of theory, if they could produce a phonated, shaped stream of sound, would the high apes ultimately be as smart as they are in the great film, The Flathead of the Apes? Well, if you take um, evolution... Uh, uh, if you can develop some form of language, it's going to give you an edge. That's the idea. So if they're going, if they have the ability to produce at least some kind of rudimentary language, those ones are going to survive, and ultimately the ones who speak the best are going to live the longest and produce the most children. Well, those high apes, are they inferior to us with regard to language and thus with regard to thought and thus with regard to the works of civilization that we have been able to accomplish and they have not? Are they inferior to us because they don't have the sort of vocal equipment we've got or is it also a matter of brain? Well, uh, early work on it, the thought that the larynx descending came before the um, onset of language in humans. But I think uh, more recently, a lot of work has been done to show that the larynx can actually descend in lots of species uh, besides man, but only during vocalizations, uh, which of course is not uh, kept in the fossil record, which is why people thought that the larynx were necessarily higher in other well, animals. Well, I suppose we've got a descended larynx in some of the talking birds, but they don't have much brain, do they? Right, no. Uh, and it's, it seems clear that the, the brain changes happened first and that the larynx probably followed it. So early hominids, uh, including our, our near relatives mm -hmm. uh, in the other parts of the primate uh, chains, are able to lower their larynxes during certain vocalizations. And it seems that probably what happened in human evolution, although we don't have any fossil record for it, is that that was an adaptive uh, change uh, and... Uh, the humans, uh, the larynx became permanently lowered uh, after the change that if led to the brain. If you've got language, that's a really effective adaptive tool. You can shout to the other guy, watch out for that damn mastodon, he's right behind you. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to imagine a bigger change in uh, uh, in the ability to organize uh, social uh, behavior, hunting, defense, yeah. uh, social grooming in every respect. Language is massively adaptive, uh, which makes it crazy that people like Chomsky say that that uh, language is not adaptive and that it was a spandrel, uh, uh, that it uh, the evolution of language had nothing to do. With Chomsky, adaptive. to whom you refer, is Noam, Noam Chomsky. Chomsky. He's an eminent uh, linguistic theorist and also rather a nut when it comes to politics, and I'm not surprised to learn that he has even spouted occasional nonsense in linguistics. Well, yeah, he, for some reason, not, not clear to me or many others, he has uh, insisted that uh, language has no adaptive value. Uh, it's not a major focus of his work, and most of the field accepts his sort of cognitive uh, conclusions about the nature of language the now. The major focus of Chomsky's work is the idea that there is a, quote, universal grammar, and that all languages somehow share that grammar and it's built into the human nervous system. Exactly. So if you're a linguist uh, where people have the stereotype that we study many, many, many languages, if you follow that view, you really only have to study one language. And if you get to its core, to its base, you've found the base of every language. Um, I find that a bit sad. Uh, Do you find it true? Um, I don't find it true, but I also don't try to find that universal grammar. I've got a lot of other things I find more interesting. Like what? Uh, for example, the history of language, the development of language, mm -hmm. um, looking at the language of uh, very early uh, societies and how they express things that are related to what we express today. Excellent. You've taken us directly to where I want to go uh, in this discussion. We've already really been talking about the early emergence of language, but how, in fact, can we, if only speculatively, uh, date when language first appears among the humans, or is it among the hominids? Um, the, it's difficult, obviously, because there's not going to be a fossil record. There's no real way to tell that um, any kind of people have spoken or not, except by looking at their culture. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the development of human material culture, you'll see, and I'm very iffy on the dates, um, a long time ago is about as accurate as I'm going to be. Um, there's a change <coughs> excuse me, of material culture from a fairly static production of certain kinds of tools and technologies to a very, very quick and rapid development of all sorts of different new tools, new technologies, and that has been linked by Made some. Made possible because we've reached a level where one guy can say to another, here's the way you do that. Right. Try that. Oh, I already tried that. Don't waste your time. Well, how far back might that be? Uh, well, uh, anthropologists say it's about 60,000 years ago. This Only. great leap forward. Uh, Only 60,000. These changes in material culture that... Uh, suggesting that before that, we didn't really have fully developed human language. That's exactly what the conclusion that some psychologists and linguists have drawn. But our species, uh, that is, Homo sapiens, or properly Homo sapiens sapiens, is older than 60,000. That's right. So um, one proposal is that uh, before that, we had a kind of proto-language. Derek Bickerton is known for this yeah. uh, phrase, a uh, kind of broken pigeon-like language. He's identified with uh, the speech of infants, the uh, linguistic capabilities of trained uh, chimpanzees and bonobos uh, in particular, and uh, maybe agrammatic aphasics uh, and other uh, humans that have uh, learned uh, language under extremely exceptional um, circumstances. Uh, the most famous case probably being this girl, Jeannie, who was discovered in 1973 in, in Los Angeles, uh, who was the victim of a terrible abuse by her father um, and brother. She was kept locked in a basement for 13 years. A feral years. child. Is a feral thing? child, right. Yeah. Uh, when she was uh, rescued from this situation, uh, she had acquired essentially no language at all. Uh, at what age? 13. 
Um, and linguists and social workers and psychologists were working with her to uh, try to teach her language, and they made some progress. Uh, her comprehension went up, um, and she acquired a, a fairly extensive vocabulary, but she never was able to figure out or learn the, the rules of uh, combining words into phrases in the way that uh, a two or two and a half... So that's, of course, part of the key to language. It isn't just words and, and, the, and knowing the reference of the words. It's also what we call grammar and syntax, isn't it? Exactly. And even what she did acquire, she in the meantime has lost, as I'm told, oh. and is uh, now basically um, a verbal. We have other stories of feral children who supposedly did wonderfully well. I don't know whether the Casper Hauser is essentially a myth. What do you know about the uh, case of Casper Hauser? This is a real-life um, case, although the background is very mysterious. A uh, young man um, who ended up being called Casper Hauser showed up in, I believe, Nuremberg, uh, yeah. 19th century, early 19th century, um, and w was not able to speak. Um, it was rather, he was first thrown into jail. Eventually... He was taught to speak and managed to tell a story of having lived from his earliest memory in this small room with one window, and he describes a small horse that he played with a toy, and um, there's speculation whether this was some unwanted child of a noble family. Um, he was then assassinated or killed um, under very mysterious circumstances. Uh, much later in uh, a German castle, they found a small l a room mm -hmm. that fitted exactly the description and even contained the, the toy horse that he described. Um, but the real question there was whether he had um, whether he'd really been a verbal or whether he had um, had some kind of injury um, or some other uh, event that had led him to lose language and regain it. Nun, Friedrich, ich wurde jetzt uh, Ihnen fragen, wo geht es in uh, heute Abend. Wie es mir geht? Ja. Oh, eigentlich ganz gut, obwohl die Reise hier ein bisschen schwierig war. Die Kinder haben alle 100 Bottles of Beer Noir gesungen, das erste Mal, und das <laughs> geht schon auf die Nerven. Aha. Uh, there we are. There's a quick switch to another human language, German. Uh, which one do you favor, Jason, as a second language? Uh, German is uh, also my most proficient second yeah. language, uh, although I speak Greek at home. Uh, my wife is Greek, and ah. uh, that's our, our major second language. As about language. to say, you should say, But it sounds pretty good to me. You're saying you haven't practiced your French in a long time. That's right. Sounds uh, better than my French. It's college French. Uh, that's so exciting, the fact that there are, in fact, to other languages, and if one can master some of them, is there anything more thrilling, really, than to sit in a cafe, whether in Athens or in Paris, and start a conversation in the language of the country? I find it just uh, personally invigorating and thrilling. Yeah. Um, I spent some time a number of years ago in Iceland studying Icelandic, ah. and then um, it um, sat on the back burner for so long that I could produce very little. Then this summer, went back to Iceland uh, for just a few days, and walking down the street, the first time I went up to someone and asked in Icelandic what time it was, and got an answer and understood it, and he understood me. Uh, yeah, how does one say drug. that in Icelandic? Kvad er klokkan. Kvad er klokkan? Kvad er klokkan, with uh -huh. a pre-aspirated K. Of course, there is another Germanic language. Yes. We need to talk about the families of languages. The families that we're most familiar with are all the ones that descend from the proto-language known as Indo-European, though, of course, there are many other proto-languages from which yet other families descend. But let's talk about the evolution of 
or the social development of the languages that we have some familiarity with or at least some knowledge of their existence. One doesn't know much about the languages of the uh, hill tribes of New Guinea, but one knows and can name the languages of most of the peoples of Europe and even of Asia Minor. Where did those languages come from? How do they differentiate from the ones to which they are related? We will address those and related questions with Frederick Schwink and Jason Merchant right after this. And we return to Frederick Schwink and to Jason Merchant, both of them linguistic scholars. Uh, Fred Schwink, professor of German languages and literatures at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Jason Merchant, professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago. What can we say about the history of the languages spoken uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, no, I guess we have to leave out the Middle East, in Europe and in the United States, that is, the Indo-European languages. Well, what do we mean by the Indo-European languages? Which ones are not, how far do we go in that classification before we run into another family? I got confused a moment ago about the Middle East, but Semitic languages are not of the Indo-European derivation, are they? Right. No, they're uh, known. They're a subbranch of Afroasiatic, one of the four major yeah. language families uh, of Africa. But uh, Indo-European does stretch all the way to India, of course. Uh, the Indo-Aryan Indo and China, in right? Fact, and, uh, and China Tocarian. with Tocharian. Uh, well, where language. does it begin? There's some language which is called Proto-Indo-European, from which it is assumed uh, English and Russian and Ukrainian and Albanian and what else descend. Where it came from is called the Urheimat question. That's a German word that's made its way into English. Yeah. And that has varied from uh, Poland to Northern Europe um, to views that I've seen that look more plausible putting it somewhere in Ukraine or in rather than in, in Rather than in India. Yeah, correct. But we call them Indo-European. Uh, so Hindic languages or Hindu languages descended from Indo-European also. Yeah, in fact, that's where the term comes from, that these are languages that geographically stretch from India to Europe, uh -huh. or if you use the German Indo-Germanisch, which is no longer in vogue uh, elsewhere, uh, from Indic languages to Germanic languages. Well, how old is that language, that Indo-European proto-language, the first one? You say, we're not quite sure where it originated, but someplace in Eastern Europe, apparently. That seems pretty plausible. How long ago? Um, you'll hear people saying anywhere from three to 10,000 years ago. And a lot of that is just educated guessing, mm -hmm. and it's guessing. Um, but within the last um, six, 7,000 years, I guess. So in the Bible, we have A begat B begat C begat D begat E, and so on. Uh, when it comes to Indo-European, how many begats do we go through before we reach English? Um, if you go by actual proposed and attested descendants, you go from Indo-European and I don't agree necessarily with this methodology, I'll say right away, to um, something like Proto-Germanic. Uh -huh. uh, from that, you get into West Germanic. From West Germanic, you might get into Ingvianic. Which one is that? Um, Ingvianic would include Frisian and English. Uh -huh. And ultimately, you'd get to something, um, some kind of Proto or early Old English, and then Middle English, and then Modern English. Uh -huh. so. Now then, shall we listen to some Old English? Here is our language as it was how many years ago? This is, we could hear a recitation of Beowulf. How far back does it, would that go? Uh, about 800 uh, A.D. About 800 A.D. Beowulf read by somebody who knows Old English. That from harm your frine here lack a stain, gold mit yard and grindless dada. Say was mon gunis, 
Mayanus dungest on thom dia thusis levis Adlon aken hait him uledon godner ye giron quath he guthkunik over swan rada sachin wolda merna theoden tha him was mana theoth thonus it tha teams not racherlos lutwan logan therke him therefore huatin hirovna hel shewedon I didn't understand a word of it. The one heard, I, the one word I did hear, was the Germanic word Konig. Yeah, is there the word Konig for king in there? Yeah, someplace? Koenig. They said uh, that was God Koenig. Uh, he was now, a good. But a good you king. understood that, did you, Jason? Oh, I can't say I understood it. I took Old English in college, and uh, I remember the grammar. Uh, is I that can... the beginning of Beowulf? I'm leaving. No, sure. that's not the beginning. It's that's from somewhere in the yeah, middle. Yeah, the beginning is Watwe. Watwe Gardena in Yardagum Thaud Koenig. Well, let's hear that beginning again. What? Watwe Gardena in Yardagum Thaud Koenig through me frunon Hutha Athelingus Ellen Fremedon. And how does that translate? Uh, uh, lo, uh, we the the spear Danes. Uh, um, uh, well, how, how does it go after that? Uh, uh, perform deeds of of, of valor um, uh, uh, through Mifrunon, uh, uh Heard of greatness. Uh, uh-huh. and I once learned this. Is this old English or is it a little bit later? This is the Lord's Prayer. Feder ur thu theort on heofnum sae thy nama geholiud. That's all. And that I can understand. Feder ur, our father, thu theort on heofnum, thou which art in heaven, sae thy nama geholiud, hallowed or blessed be thy name. And there it sounds very much like German, doesn't it? It does have a lot of similarity to German, not because some people will say, oh, English comes from German. It doesn't, but because they come from the same root. Um, you could take uh, Old High German, Vater Unser zu in Himinam, for example, and you get some very similar things. Or Gothic, uh, where they say, Vater Unser zu in Himinam, Wichne wird Thonamo Thins, Quimeth Judenasus Thins, Wert the Willia Thins, Swan Himinam, Swa Uf Erte, for example. But then, in the history of English, though the base is a Germanic language, Proto German, you would say. Absolutely Germanic. So German descends from it, and English. Ultimately, yes. an old English descends from it, but then you get two overlays, don't you? Or you get, th- or three. You've got the Latin overlay with the, the Roman conquest. Mm-hmm. Then you've got um, the, well, or no way, I'm getting, I'm confusing the, myself. The Latin overlay the is fairly are there, minor, are, but they're, and they're there earlier than right. There's there's Roman contact with the Germanic peoples earlier on. Yeah. So we get uh, everything from the word street to wine to cheese which are all Latin words, ultimately. But the big new overlay, of course, is French. Exactly. And that's French. 1066 and all. Right. That's the um, Norman Congress. invasion. But you also have, before that, and then somewhat after that, a Scandinavian influence. Uh-huh. Um, and that has inc- uh, uh, produced such uh, common word as they, them. Um, it's why we have the word skirt, yeah. which is a Scandinavian word, but shirt, which is an English word. Now, what did French do to the English language, or to the developing English language? Uh, well, first of all, it gave us a whole bunch of vocabulary estimates range from 50 to 60 percent of the dictionary uh, has uh, a Latin uh, origin through French. Of mm-hmm. course, we didn't borrow directly from Latin very much. Um, uh, and second, uh, the speakers of French, uh, who were the the prestige speakers uh, after the Norman They conquest, were the conquering Normans. Right. Yeah. Um, they learned English very imperfectly, if at all, and uh, presumably had... Uh, a lot of influence in um, the loss of the verbal inflections and 
nominal inflections that were characteristic of uh, of Old English, uh, uh, leading to Chaucerian English and Shakespearean English. Although a lot of those changes, uh, particularly the loss of cases and loss of gra uh, gender and things, seem to have been already happening. Um, but the French coming in and Old English disappearing for the most part as a written language just helped uh, precipitate the but uh, it, changes. But it was convenient to lose gender, wasn't it? I should think one of the reasons English is such a, a popular language around the world is that it's comparatively easy. You don't have to worry, as you do even in German or French uh, or Russian or what have you, about whether the noun is masculine, feminine, or neuter. Actually, you do. We have a gender system in English, just like in German, just like in French. Work? Um, it's completely semantic or almost completely semantic, and everything is masculine, feminine, or neuter by whether it is sex as a male, a female, or a neuter. So table, chair, all of these things are neuter, it, and that's reflected in the pronoun it, yes. but a man, yeah. he, a woman, he? she. Yeah. And the only exceptions are things like ships. And but those whatnot. are pronouns, but for the man, you don't have to say, you don't have to have a conflict between demon, dasman, or, or del. Oh, absolutely. We don't have very many words that show gender, just pronouns, but that yeah. is a pronominal gender system. Um, uh, just as you'll find in German. It's still easier this way, don't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. There are lots of languages that lack any gender systems at all, Finnish, Hungarian, Turkish, Chinese. Uh, there are no gender even in the pronominal system for those. What is Finnish? Is Finnish, in fact, an Indo-European language, or is it a mystery? It's a Finno-Ugric language. Um, Which is a different stock. Different entirely, yeah, unrelated to Indo-European. But it is related to... Hungarian. To Hungarian. And Finnish Estonia. and Hungarian. In Europe. And have they now decided that Basque somehow is also connected, or is it still a mystery, uh, a language with no ancestors? Um, the last I've heard with Basque is uh, no ancestors, no relations, except um, there are possible, possible links to Etruscan, which is itself somewhat Etruscan. of a mystery. Etruscan, yeah. Fascinating. So. Let's hear a touch of uh, Middle English, English after the French have Frenchified the language. And of course, the great source for that is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, though the, you could have many other things uh, of poetic reference as well. I think Piers Plowman is of, roughly of the same period, is it not? But here is the reading of, I guess, the, uh, the prologue of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. One that apria with his sure sorter, the drut of merch hath persed to the rota, and bothered every vine in switch liqueur of which vertu engendred is the fleur. One Zephyrus ache with his sweeter breath, in spirit hath in every halt and hath the tender crappus, and the younger suna hath in the ram is how the course iruna, and smala fulus mach and melodia fat slepen on the nicht with open ear, so prick of him nature in here courageous. Van longen folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmers for to saken strangest drondes, to ferna hawes, couth in sondre londes, and specially from every shearer's ender of England, to Canterbury fi wender, the holly blissful martyr for to saken, that him have hopen when that thy were saken. Now, I wonder, is that a good reading, or is he, is he a little bit off? Um, from what I can tell, it's a good reading, yeah. but there are a lot of things that we aren't really sure on. For example, how the R was pronounced. Uh, we, we theorize about it, and there are various reasons you could suggest it was one or the other kind of R, but we don't really know. The way I learned it, it's a bit more liquid. One that appeal with his shoulder, sort of the drocht of Mersch, hath pierced to the rota, 
and bathed in every vein in which liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the floor. Yeah, his uh, French loan word sounded a bit more French, too. Yeah. Uh, the engendered, for example. Yeah. But do you think that's comprehensible to the ordinary listener out there right now? Oh, I'm sure they'll tell us. I, it's, it's pretty hard to, for me to comprehend. Uh, well, if you if say it in French, study. it is comprehensible. Oh, sure. It? Yeah. Uh, One that's operated with the shorter stuff. So when that April with its or with her sweet showers, the drochs of Merchef Persa to the rota. Yeah, has pierced the, the drought, the of, drought March of March to, to its root. root. Thank you. You should no. be asking me middle high German. Yeah. Zephyrus with her sweat breath. Zephyrus is. Of course, the great gods. The wind, gods, zephyr. Zephyr. Yeah, that's yeah. the wind, the, the zephyr. Mm -hmm. uh, inspired it hath in every halt and hath as a thunder As inspired mm -hmm. in every, what's a halt? Yeah, halt. Uh, a little uh, stand of trees, something the like cups. that. Cups. Cups. Yeah. And has the tundra croppers, has right. the, the, yes. the, the tender crops have begun to grow because the spring winds are blowing and so on. Yeah. Certainly we can read it. Uh, I mean, with a little bit of practice, it doesn't take much for a, a modern uh, English speaker to read and understand Chaucer, but to, to hear it pronounced is a different ballgame, as anybody and Of course, you find the same with all other major languages, wouldn't you? They have earlier forms which scholars know and can understand, but which the ordinary modern uh, speaker of the language couldn't quite make out. Um, I can think of at least one exception. And that it would be Icelandic again, oh, yes? where the uh, spoken form of the language has changed so little from medieval times that uh, a modern Icelander can read without a great deal of help uh, medieval Icelandic texts. Would that be because of the isolation of the island? Uh, absolutely. Um, but also because of a strong feeling of linguistic patriotism. Uh -huh. uh, they've done a lot since the 19th century to resurrect forms that were dying or changing, and uh, they're very proud of the language. Um, but I teach North Re Old Icelandic right mm -hmm. now, and uh, we're using texts which were written in Old Icelandic for modern Icelanders, you'll find per page maybe one or two brief footnotes on vocabulary items. Oh, interesting. Until you get to the poetry. The poetry is a different matter. Why? Um, the Icelanders had a form of poetry called skaldic poetry, which is incredibly complex. Um, my theory, not just my theory, is that they had a lot of long, dark winter nights and time on their hands. Um, to come up with the most complex poetry you could imagine with um, hidden metaphors, with um, a meter that was so strict that you could move words anywhere you wanted just so that you would get the right number of syllables and words beginning with the right consonant or vowel. Um, it, it's dreadful stuff uh, unless you like doing crossword puzzles and acrostics. And then give it, it's give fun. Give us just a touch of the sound of it. Um, of Icelandic I can do. I can't quote any scholarly poems uh, myself, but that var idugum harald's haurfagers, that and so forth. So that was in the days of Harold the Fair Hair. I see. But if you took, say, a modern Greek uh, and gave him Homer to read in the original version, would he be able to understand it? Oh, that's a pretty politically touchy question because the what? Greeks are uh, are equally uh, linguistically patriotic. Uh, it's hard actually to find a, a modern Greek that you could run that experiment on because they they study ancient Greek for years uh, in their education. Oh, do they really? Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, and um, uh, and of course they hear the uh, uh, the biblical versions of Greek in the churches, so uh, they have a lot of exposure by the time they're adults to earlier forms of language and and and. 
uh, have ease with it. But uh, I think it's fair to say that Homer in particular would be pretty difficult for someone who had managed to avoid uh, studying ancient Greek uh, and uh, even as an adult, uh, not because of vocabulary so much, but um, uh, the syntax and uh, the morphology had changed considerably in 3,000 years. A nice young woman, student at the Sorbonne, sitting at the cafe floor uh, this very night and gave her uh, a, a, a printed version of the original form of the Chanson de Roland. Would she be able to understand it? The Song of Roland. Most of it, probably, I think. A fair amount, as long as it was not pronounced, because the pronunciation has that's middle, changed that's a middle lot. French, isn't right, it? right. Um, the pronunciation has changed a lot, in particular, from what I understand of Middle French, which is not my area, that um, if you look at modern French, there's so many consonants that you don't pronounce. Uh -huh. All the S's on the ends, for example, think of those things. Yeah. And here they were pronounced. Um, the spelling agreed much, much more with the pronunciation. Well, it sounds pronunciation. to me from what you're saying that some even modern languages and some modern linguistic groups are more in touch with their linguistic past than we are in English. Absolutely. Um, Icelandic, as I said, is one of the, the yeah. best examples. Uh, and there it's a point of national pride. Um, and one of the ways it's reflected is by looking at what they don't do or don't take from other languages. Um, many, many languages are quite happy to borrow vocabulary and grammar and whatnot, you know, lock, stock, and barrel from us or from other languages. Um, Icelandic has been very conservative about any kind of loan words. Um, there, there are a few, but you have to look a long time to find them and to find ones that are actually used by people. Nous sommes aussi très tard et on doit quitter ce moment pour les messages. What we've just been talking about during the commercial break with Frederick Schwenk and Jason Merchant is tongue twisters, which is interesting because what that points up, a tongue twister points up, I guess, that some, mo uh, some combinations of sounds are easier than others. I offered you the French tongue twister, les chaussettes de l'archiduchesse sont elles sèches, archi sèches. Easy uh, for you to say. Easy for me to say. Uh, and it's really the socks of the Duchess, are they dry, utterly dry? <laughs> but uh, that's very hard to say. I've practiced it for years before I was able to match it. What's yours? Uh, toy boat. Just <laughs> those two words? Those two words. Say them six times fast. Even English native speakers well, have a hard I'll time. I'll ask Frederick <laughs> to say toy boat six times. Great. Toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. Oh, lost it. Now, why, why is that? What happens? Uh, well, it's the the vowel spaces. Like all, I think all tongue twisters rely on the fact that uh, uh, certain types of um, articulations uh, yeah. are hard to uh, to um, to do in quick succession. Uh, there's a lot of there's a phenomenon of co-articulation that the the articulation of one sound bleeds into another. And um, uh, you don't want vowels too close together. Is that Part of the room? Yeah, I guess so. I'm I'm a syndactician, so uh, you'd have to really ask a phonetician for a, a, is a good explanation. Is Peter Piper pick a peppers supposed to be difficult for the same reason? I think so. No, there's no, more the continental one. The, the continental problem of p and k and yeah. alternating back and forth, um, where in other uh, uh, contexts, getting that kind of combination of sounds, alternation yeah. of sounds, as a regular thing. You know, so one back and forth, back and forth can be very useful if you think about music, where uh -huh. tuka ta tuka ta tuka ta tuka ta things like that when you're tonguing something. Uh, yeah, but that's a regular you one. Have a tongue twister in German or in Icelandic? Icelandic, I don't have any, but uh, the language is a tongue twister. I could argue that. Yeah. Um, in German, is one uh, der Kaplan klebt pap plakate pap plakate klebt der Kaplan. 
Oh, my. <laughs> which uh, goes back and forth with the P and the K. And what, the T. what does it mean? Um, the chaplain is uh, gluing up uh, cardboard posters, and then it says the same thing in different uh, word uh, order. Uh, Not very profound. Are there languages that are intrinsically nicer to listen to than other languages? Is there an aesthetics of, you know, of, of the sound of a language as such? Lots of people would argue that there is, of course. But is there really? It's an aesthetic question. Which, what's the most beautiful city to live in, do you think? Uh, um, it's the same answer. Uh, people's uh, metrics vary what they value in uh, sound and uh, Well, many vision. argue that German is sort of guttural and not really attractive, but that's not true. When properly pronounced, it's wonderfully fluid. Oh, I, I absolutely agree, but of course I uh, live for and yeah. uh, because of the German, well, I have my profession because of the German language, um, and I realize that's an aesthetic decision. It's, it's my own um, perception of things, but I think it's a beautiful language. I love to listen to German. I love to speak it. I love Dutch. Give us a few words of, of German poetry, for example. Um, ich hatte einst ein schönes Vaterland. Der Eichenbaum wuchs dort so hoch, die Palchen nickten sanft. Es war ein Traum. Man küsste mich und sprach auf Deutsch. Ich liebe dich. Es war ein Traum. Ja. Reminds me of Heine. Du bist wie eine Brümme. So hältst du schön so rein. Ich schau dich an und Weimut schleich mich im Herzen ein. Is that Right? Yes, although unfortunately Mark yeah. Twain used that very poem in a play he wrote. Um, uh, several young men trying to impress uh, young ladies on uh -huh. how poetic, uh, poetically inclined they were, and they each uh, claimed that they had written this poem to impress the girl in question and uh, <laughs> got caught at it. Uh, a play that Mark Twain wrote called Meisterschaft. Why does Chinese sound so odd to me? Uh, well, to our ears, it's because it's a it's a tonal language. It uses uh, pitch uh, changes to indicate uh -huh. uh, differences in meaning in ways that are unfamiliar in most of the Indo-European languages. Can Although, you, could you illustrate that? We should. Uh, well, for example, in uh, in Chinese, the word for eight uh, is ba, with a, a single um, uh, steady tone. Uh, the word for to pour is ba where there's a falling tone. Uh, the, the, the word for damn is uh, ba, with a, a rising tone. I think I'm getting these tones right. I, I sometimes get them confused. And the word uh, to push is uh, uh, ba, uh, with a, a rising tone. So those are the four tones of Mandarin Chinese. Cantonese has nine uh, different languages, but have, have different numbers. But it, we should note, uh, as one of my colleagues, uh, Alan Yu, um, is fond of pointing out, that the majority of humans speak tonal languages. Uh, if you look at the, the, the population of the world, six billion, more than three billion speak uh, a tonal language. Those of us who don't speak tonal languages are actually in the minority. Uh, well, now, which families are the tonal languages? Well, Sino-Tibetans are the Chinese languages and their dialects, uh -huh. uh, and much of Southeast Asia, Hmong, Thai, uh, and uh, languages of Malaysia. Uh, much of Africa is uh, our tonal languages. A lot of the Bantu languages, Khoisan languages are tonal. Hausa, Yoruba. Um, Can adults ever really acquire that? Obviously children do because children learn the languages that surround them. But can an adult ever become totally fluent? An, uh, an adult who speaks a non-tonal language ever become totally fluent in a tonal language? Oh, that's a good question. That's sort of like, uh, I, I often get asked, what's the hardest language to learn? And I say, well, what's the farthest city? Uh, it depends on where you start, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, 
how far you have to travel. And tonal languages are uh, significantly more difficult for that reason uh, than non-tonal ones, if you start with a non-tonal one. Which brings us, I'm just pre-associating here, brings us to a great question, which is, of course, interested psychologists, in which they've worked a great deal, together with linguists, to be sure, namely the acquisition of language and the ways in which language so easily uh, is acquired and ultimately produced by babies. By the age of three, they're speaking whatever it is, and speaking it with total competence, even though there may be a, a limited uh, vocabulary. Oh, yes. It's, it's very frustrating for those of us who are trying to learn more languages yeah. as we get older. Um, I uh, teach German, and I've got uh, adult students who um, do pretty well, but they will not get rid of their American accent. Um, we spent four months in Germany with the family this spring, and my... Uh, uh, five-year-old at the time, uh -huh. uh, after the end of that time, was, although not speaking completely fluent German, mm. had a wonderful accent. Is it holding up? It, that is holding up so far. If you um, keep it in practice. But we're trying, the, the accent, but she's losing the motivation. Uh -huh. um, she thought it was a game. She thought it was fun there. Now it's fading away. Um, we do show, we do have some movies that we do watch yeah. with her, and I do try to speak. I, I wake my children every morning in German to go get ready for school. So if nothing else, I'll always remember, jetzt aufstehen, Schule, Schultag, jetzt aufstehen, komm zu meinem Mädchen. They, they will know those ones and, and probably regret knowing them. You know, to be a touch on the confessional side, one sorrow, or at least one loss in my life, is the loss of my first language. Uh, I, my first language was a variant of German, to be sure. It was Yiddish, because my parents were East European immigrants, uh, and we spoke Yiddish at home. And I was the first child as well. Uh, and I still know it. I can understand it. I can decode it, though not all the rich vocabulary of a Talmudic scholar speaking in a yeshiva in East Brooklyn or something. But basically, I got the language to decode, but to encode, to produce it, I can speak simple things, obviously. But I really could not conduct a full and intelligent conversation in Yiddish the way I can, I hope, in English. So. But the engrams were there. They were laid down. Uh, and I don't quite understand why they haven't persisted more fully than they have. Well, yeah. Um, I, I tell my students the, the mind is a mental organ. It's, uh, it needs exercise, uh, and uh, it will atrophy. Uh, knowledge yeah. of facts and even of languages atrophy. Um, my uh, grandmother who spoke, uh, uh, great-grandmother who spoke German uh, uh, solely until she was 21 and came to this country uh, at the end of her life uh, hardly uh, knew any um, uh, German anymore. Um, she had spent uh, 50, 55 years uh, speaking English and, uh, mm. and if you don't use it or lose it really it's true of uh, languages as well. Um, so when it comes to first language there is not a sort of substrate laid down which is eternally there? I think up uh, up until about puberty, when the ability to acquire languages sort of natively uh, with a perfect accent, um, uh, up until puberty, you can uh, learn as many languages as you want and call yeah. them all your native language. Uh, which one you learned first is sort of immaterial. Uh, but if you don't use them, then you can they they can, you can end up losing them. And we know all probably know immigrants who never acquired came to this country, for example, late uh, in life in their twenties, say. Um, never acquired English perfectly, but uh, who have also atrophied in their uh, original language and uh, don't sp speak with an accent, for example. Yeah, they'll speak it with an accent in both languages. Right. Yeah. 
My wife has an uncle whose English sounds horribly Norwegian and whose Norwegian sounds horribly American. So he's almost like a non-native speaker of anything. <laughs> uh, we've got to pause in just a moment for some commercials. And it is time to invite telephone calls. We're just wandering around uh, talking about, and I'm very much enjoying our talking about language. But there are so many questions about and topics concerning language that we have not yet touched upon. Uh, anything and everything concerning human language is uh, available for discussion tonight uh, and uh, based upon the questions that you raise or the comments that you want to make as you call us, 591-7200, the number, 591-7200. And something else occurs to me it's just th at this moment. Maybe this is madness, but let's try it anyway. I hereby invite speakers of other languages, not the obvious ones like French, German, Russian, Polish, uh, and so on, but somewhat more obscure to our ears, at least. I invite them to call and address us directly in that other language to see if we can at least decode and decide what language is being spoken. In other words, test the two linguists and the one non-linguist uh, on uh, our recognition of some of the other languages that are represented, say, in Chicago or in the larger country or the world, since we reach every place. In fact, since we are, of course, heard on the internet tonight and heard every place thus in the world, if you want to send us some email in uh, your native language, we'd be happy to receive it. The email address is extension720 at tribune.com. And of course, the phone number is 591-7200. I think we'll go directly to the phones and the email after this. And we will go to the phones in just an instant. First, a quick reintroduction of our guests. Frederick Schwenk, professor of German languages and literatures at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, whose research interests include German and Indo-European historical linguistics, language typology, and the history of linguistics. Jason Merchant is professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago, and he specializes in the study of syntax and semantics. And Jason, you had an original doctoral dissertation, which you then published with a wonderful title. Uh, it was, uh, what, The Syntax of Silence. That's right. I offer you this quotation from Ralph Richardson, the great English actor, who says, the most precious things in speech are pauses. Does that connect with your own thought? Uh, yes, that's what I ended up spending years of my life <laughs> studying, those pauses, the, well, in particular gaps in, uh, in the speech signal. Um, and explain a little bit. How do they work? What did, what did you find? Uh, well, I was looking at the, the problem of interpreting silence. Uh, so when you say something like, uh, Milt uh, wants to learn uh, Basque uh, as much as uh, uh, Frederick does, uh, we have a, a clause, the second one, Frederick does, that uh, has nothing in it, that has no verb in it. Uh, we understand it to mean wants to learn Basque, but we don't say those words, and that's the puzzle. How do you get something for nothing? Uh, it's not the same, though, as the significant use of silence as a way of communicating some thought or emotion or reaction. Yeah, unfortunately, it really is a more uh, narrow uh, grammatical phenomenon that I was studying and uh, not a rhetorical one. Uh, there's a fellow at uh, our university, at the University of Chicago, uh, who studies paralinguistics. He's a member of uh, my department, uh, psychology, namely Starkey Duncan. Do you know Starkey's work at all? Uh, no, uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. By paralinguistics, he means non-lexical speech that still 
communicates, which has to do then with tone, with pauses, with silences, with intensifications, and uh, the different ways in which we shade the meaning of any utterance, depending upon those non-lexical forms. Um, you are most welcome to come tonight. You are most welcome to come tonight, or you're most welcome to come tonight. I think those are three different meanings. Oh, absolutely. What's conveyed is not necessarily just uh, what is meant. Uh, so it can yeah. be true uh, and yet have all sorts of other types of uh, meanings, uh, so to speak. Yeah. We go to the phones. 591-7200 is uh, the number. And for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And I repeat my invitation of a few minutes ago. You don't have to address us in a language that will uh, give us a puzzle and require some quick uh, guessing or, or some quick uh, ratiocinative uh, resolution of the ambiguity so that we can name your language. But if you are so inclined, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Don't tell us the language. Just address us in that language. And do so, please, in a polite way. 591-7200, uh, and you are on the air. Good evening. You got me. Let's see about the two linguists. Could you repeat that? You got me too. How do you say my mother loves my father? Ah, I got it. I think you're talking Gaelic. Uh, no. All right, I'm wrong. I hear these plus in there, which makes it sound like it should be something familiar, but it's not Indo-European. Welsh? No. No, no, not Welsh. Well, you better tell us. Uh, it, it is a language similar to Thai. Ah. What, uh, lang what language is it? Cambodian. Uh, Cambodian. Oh, interesting. How did you acquire it? I served an LDS mission in Cambodia, and when we do that, we learn the language and, and teach the people for two years. So basically, I, I spoke for two years just Cambodian. Very impressive. Um, now, now that you know that it's Cambodian, do either of you recognize any further aspects of its structure? Uh, I'm not too familiar with Cambodian, I have to say. It's one of, you have to think about the, the size of the task here. There are about 6,000 languages uh, in the world, and I, I would, I'd say I could maybe do 30, so that's half of 1%. When you uh, say you can do 30, what do you mean? R recognize. Recognize rather than Spoken. speak. Spoken. Oh, yeah. sure. Written, you can recognize more. Well, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You've given us an excellent beginning. Thank you. I appreciate the call. 591-7200, the number. And you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Gazuar Kristlindiet. More. Unio Roy Juve, Vitenbar, for Viten Dumie Jast. Anybody got a hint on this one? Can you, can you count to five? Uh, well, then we're clearly into European. Romanian. Romanian, Romanian you're guessing. Uh, Romanian? What did you say? Yes. Is Jason Merchant is guessing Romanian. Is that right? No, it's not. Let's give us a little bit more. 
about say I am, you are, he is? Unyam, tie, aiest. Oh, it's oh, it's Albanian. Okay. Albanian. Okay. Skip. 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 How did how did you know that was Albanian? Uh, unyam is I am an Albanian. Yes. Uh, so. Uh -huh. And I grabbed the on when I thought of Slavic on he. Yeah. So. yeah. How, now how did you come by Albanian, sir? Uh, I. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm living here just, uh, my English is not very well. You are an Albanian. I see. Yeah, I'm an Albanian. Shumir, Shumir. Shumir. What does that mean? Falimderit. Falimderit. What does that mean? Very good in Albanian. It means very, see. very good. Falimderit. Thank you. Well, yeah. thank you, thank sir. You. Thank very you. Very glad to have heard from you. Yeah. Uh, this is fun. 5917200 is the number. And you are next on the air. Good evening. Hello, Professor Mill. Yes, sir. Big fan of your show. Uh, to you and your guest, Ka Yums Iet. You got to say more than just a few words. Oh, Ka, ka Yums Iet, and the reply would be Paul Diaz, Man Iet, love it. Counting to five always helps. Count to five. Um, Vince, uh, uh, first of all, I'm not a native speaker. I was born here in Chicago. My parents were from. Oh, wait, did you say Vienz? Vien, oh, David, it's Chris. something, um, uh, it's a Baltic language. Could it be Lithuanian? Uh, close. Latvian? Exactly. All right. And could, could you tell me any studies between the connection of it being called the Latvian language Old Prussian? Is it from some Germanic language or from the displaced Actually, people that the, the knights of whatever, 13th century conquered? Yeah, actually, it's the other way around. Uh, the word Prussian comes from uh, a Baltic language related to Latvian and also to Lithuanian. Um, it's not well attested. There are some documents, uh, a Lutheran catechism, but then it died out in the uh, 16th or 17th centuries. And, um, yeah, it gave the name to Prussia, which is, of course, preeminently German, but the name is not. Are the three Baltic nations very similar linguistically? Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania? Um, Lithuanian has got the most archaic of the three. Um, and uh, is Estonia is closer to like Finland and exactly. Slavic. Exactly, so it's a non-Indo-European uh -huh. language. Uh -huh. Thank, right. you, Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. And on to another. 591-7200 is the number. If you try to reach us and hit the busy signal, as you will if you try right now, I fear, uh, the best strategy, of course, is to call again after we say goodnight to a prior caller. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, hello. I have a comment about the, the Basque language. Uh, one of your, uh, the people uh, with you mentioned that it's related to uh, uh, Etrurian or Etruscan, Tuscany. I heard a few years ago, or quite a few years ago, that it, in some way it could be related to uh, Slovak also. Have any of you heard of that? Um. As far as let me let me back up with the Etruscan, um, the connection has been drawn by some people, but um, how plausibly that's a different issue. You don't um, necessarily believe it or buy it. Not myself, but I haven't worked with it. Uh, Slovak, I would say, um, not even remotely. Oh, okay. Uh, I have a little uh, uh, tongue twister, sort of a tongue twister. Cano, decano, decano, non cano, decane, cano. And what is that? Latin. Well, I hear a dog in there. Yeah. yeah, it's Latin. Say it again. Cano de cano de cano, non cano de cane cano. Which translates as? I sing of the white-haired dean. I do not sing of the white-haired dog. I see. <laughs> that reminds me of something I've always loved 
about the two um, uh, dyslexic theologians who argued all night about the nature of dogs. Uh, we thank you, sir, for the call. Okay, you're welcome. And we pause briefly for a round of messages. And we return to Frederick Schwink and Jason Merchant. Uh, Merchant, here's an interesting question from a listener down in Atlanta. Since languages are essentially rule-based systems, why is it so difficult to teach a computer to understand an open-ended conversation? This skill that any seven-year-old can master mystifies the most powerful of processors. Your thoughts? Uh, the distinction between um, the rules and the semantics underlying uh, the vocabulary and the situations uh, are something that's basically impossible to get a computer to, to grasp. Um, if you look at the different meanings of a simple word like pickle, you know, it's a verb, it's a noun, um, to be in a pickle is a difficult situation. Um, we, we understand the situation well enough uh, cognitively that we can pick out which meaning we want. To tell, get a computer to do that? Very difficult. That shows up also in computer translation programs. Absolutely. They produce some wonderful effects. I've got a, uh, a blog, which is to be found on our regular website and also independently uh, on, in the Internet, miltsfile.com. Very simple. Uh, when you go to Babel or something else to translate it, uh, the name of the blog, miltsfile, turns out in French to be um, uh, la, la, le dossier de la licence, dossier de la licence, licence, that's what they make of Milt. Milt is obviously a nickname or a reduced form of Milton, but also Milt is an English word that refers to essentially fish sperm, and that's what licence is in French. <laughs> so the dossier of fish sperm is Milt's file, translated yeah. by Babel into French. Yeah. That's when are they going to beat this problem? Well, uh, every five years we hear the computer scientists tell us that it's just around the corner. Uh, and uh, linguists are still waiting for that day. Uh, the computer techniques have gotten powerful. Very amazing things are done now with uh, uh, automatic uh, uh, learning algorithms and uh, distributional analysis uh -huh. that, that we couldn't have imagined maybe 10 years ago just due to the nature of, of the power involved. But uh, the, uh, extracting the underlying rule schema and uh, applying it in real-world situations is still uh, over the horizon. Got another language coming up for you. Here's the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. A little bit more, please. Um, Count from one to five. That is something indic. Could it be? No. Count from six to ten. Shish, haft, hasht, no, I want it to be Iranian. Yes. Persian. Iranian. Fuzzy. Farsi. All right. Exactly. Thank you. The H uh -huh. is on the sixth word. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's your native language, is it, ma'am? Yes, it is. Yes, it well, is. thank you very much. Budan ya na budan. What was that? Budan ya na budan. To be or not to be. Oh, really? <laughs> That's an important question. Yes, indeed. Budan ya na Why doesn't the listener say it? She's gone. Oh, budan ya na budan. To be uh -huh. or not to be. In German, it's uh, sein oder nicht sein. Sein oder nicht sein. Yeah. What, are the, what is it in other languages? Uh, to be or not to be. Uh, être ou ne pas être. <laughs> yeah, that's a good French, French version. And I guess in Dutch it would be sein of nicht, uh, nicht sein. Uh -huh. Wonderful. 591-7200 is the number. 
You are the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, first of all, I thoroughly enjoy your program, and I, I thank you so much for it, uh, Professor Rosenberg. A comment and a question. Yes, indeed. Uh, I, in college, I was in a chorus, and we sang Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols, and that's very timely for this time of year. And at first, as I was listening to you, I thought it was Old English, and now I pretty sure it was middle english but we had to really learn and learn and practice and it's been so long i don't remember the words i just remember the the melody but uh that's that's my comment as far as you know music uh being used in in that way my question is uh what about native american languages and i'll hang up and listen to what you have to say well, stay with us for a minute. By oh, Native okay. American languages, you mean broadly all the languages spoken by American Indians? Exactly. Well, uh, there are a, a number of families, are there not? Um, there are a number of families, although it's somewhat disputed, as you would imagine. Um, one of the problems being that we just don't have very much early attestation of these languages. Um, for the Indo-European languages, you have several thousand years of written texts that help you discover or figure out which ones are related to which ones in what way. Um, Native American languages, uh, if you're lucky, you have uh, a couple of centuries. Um, and of course, there's related problems like the question of survival of these languages. Uh, many, if not most of them, are very, very much uh, endangered these days. Mm -hmm. uh, few speakers, few young speakers, uh, few or no monolingual speakers. Um, so that's, that's a concern for a lot of people. Okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, you. I'm sure you probably are aware, during World War II, the uh, uh, armed forces were able to use the, uh, I think it was the Navajos, uh, for uh, sending messages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, you know, our this enemies the, never figured them out. That was in the Pacific Theater. and it, 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 Okay, I wasn't sure it, where it, it was. It confused the Japanese, certainly. Well, I believe that then some of these speakers were very highly decorated for their yeah. accomplishments. Yeah. Weren't they called wind speakers or something? I think like so, yeah. yeah. Wind talkers. Wind yeah. talkers. Yeah, wind talkers. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much, man. Thank you. Here's a furious one. Um, this is from a, uh, this is email. I want to hear you say this in my mother tongue and see if the guests guess it. I will transliterate it into simple phonemes. Uh, words are separated by a few spaces, and phones of a word are separated by a single space, he says. Uh, so, ungal, nigalchi, migavum, nanraha, iruk kiradu. He even gives me the meaning of it. It's not a language I know, but and I don't know how authentic my pronunciation has been, but he's tried to give it to me in uh, uh, in transliterated form that might communicate. Ungal ni galji migavum nanraha iruk kiradu. It's Tamil, and he uh, translates it as, your program is very good. Lovely. A non-Indo-European language of India. Yeah, and I, I thank the caller both for the contribution and for the kind comment about the language. And back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening. Mandeido, Eida Piarsorcho. Yes, you're right. Mandeido, Eida Piarsorcho. Sounds nice. It sounds lovely. Yeah. We're puzzled. Say, say a little more. Count from one to five. Mandeido, Eida Piarsorcho. Are you counting from one to five? No. 
Well, count from one to five. Ah, uh-uh. Kharchov or Judea? Hmm. We're lost. Kharchov or Judea? Nenets. Uh, Ojibwe. Kharchov or Judea? Kharchov almost sounds like the Italian for artichoke. Kharchov. Uh huh. Aha, uh-huh, what? Aha. Uh-huh. You're not talking Italian. Roman. Roman? What do you mean by Roman? Roman dialect. Uh, really? Oh, yes. Could you say what Le- you said again now? Undeido. Where did he went? Undeido. Eido apia el sorcho. Now that you say that, it sounds remotely familiar, but there's a problem. Italian? Dove è andato? È andato a prendere il topo. Hmm. Prendere. Was that yeah. in there? Dove è andato? Yeah. Prendere il topo. Yeah. And they ito. So this is Italian. And they ito a prendere a pia il sorcio. So you're saying this is Italian as spoken in Rome? No, no. This is the Roman, real Roman, old Roman dialect. Hmm. I mean, we, that's vulgar. I mean, we don't, you know, they, you know, they don't speak like that. You know, yeah. You have to be real and real. Well, how did you learn it, ma'am? I am from Rome. Yes, but it's the old Roman dialect. Not all Ro- not, not all Roman citizens speak it, do they? Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, among each other, but not now uh, uh, not in you know with the public or anything. You know what I mean? That is fascinating. You're saying it's the esoteric language of Romans. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, well, uh, you know we have uh, so many dialects in Italy that I don't understand. Mm. Uh-huh. I was with a group of of, uh, of Italian from uh, South from Bari last uh, Sunday. I don't understand one thing they say. Well, we thank you very much for the contribution. Uh, don't forget Milton. Carciofi alla Giudea. I know you were in Rome. Carciofi alla Giudea is served at the uh, Ristorante Monte Peperno. Yes, in the Campo di Fiori. Beautiful. That's right, yes. I, I love I, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Carciofi alla Giudea is the leading Jewish-Italian dish. It's <laughs> simply artichokes done up in olive oil, spread out. And they do serve it at the Monte Paperno restaurant. Have you, either of you been there? No. It's no. a well-known <laughs> restaurant in Rome. Uh, five, it, yes. it, it shows part of the problem. If you're trying to recognize something that uh, will be from very, very far away and it's somewhat closer. Yeah. Um, I had a book I picked up once in uh, Cyrillic writing, so mm-hmm. which is used for Russian, which I'd been learning. And I started looking through it, and I did not recognize a thing. And it wasn't until sometime later that I got someone to identify it for me. This was when I was an undergrad. It was uh, Moldavian, which is Romanian, uh-huh. a Romance language, mm-hmm. but written in the Cyrillic alphabet. And once I was told it was a, uh, a, a Romance language, I started looking at it and recognizing things right and left. But I just had the wrong glasses on, as it were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A language that fascinates and frustrates me is one that you mentioned earlier, Romanian, which is, of course, a Romance language. And I'm not totally unskilled in the Romance languages. Uh, and when I try to read Romanian, I can, can't really make it out. And when I hear Romanian, as one day I did when a group of uh, Romanian trade delegation came to Chicago, a few hundred people, and I was invited to a big dinner, and I, they sat me at a table where only one person spoke English, and I was really, and she didn't speak it very well. And I was quite at a loss because I tried to speak some French to these people, and uh, that didn't work either. Uh, though they we're told this language descends directly from uh, Roman, uh, it's gone for transformations, surely. Sure. Uh, I mean, compare Portuguese with French. Uh, uh, a Portuguese speaker can't understand uh, French spoken no. in uh, Lyon at all, and those—it's you know, the same thing with Romanian. But curiously, Romanian sounds rather Slavic, though it isn't. 
it's been in close contact with Slavic languages. It's got a fair amount of vocabulary. Yeah. Um, it's got a very strange gender system, uh, although that's not necessarily from Slavic. Uh, so that may explain at least some of the phonological differences. You know, this is why if uh, if aliens are 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 beaming them beaming us their radio shows, we'll never actually be able to figure out what they're saying. <laughs> it's uh, it's so difficult without any any extra linguistic cues at all to even figure out where the words begin and end. Uh, it's one of the great puzzles of uh, or amazing things that children can do it uh, so easily, but um, um, they get a lot of help too. Isn't linguistic variation a joy when you really think about it? What a wonderful thing it is that we've invented. <laughs> that rather, so many la separate languages have evolved and have influenced one another and generated new languages and so on. There is a problem, is there not, that some languages are dying? Absolutely. Uh, by some estimates, 90% um, uh, of the world's languages uh, could be endangered, uh, meaning within the, the next 100 years not uh, spoken uh, mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, I think that's probably wildly uh, overestimated, um, but I think it's a conservative figure puts it at something like 50%, and this is because of the spread of dominant political economic languages like English and Chinese and Swahili. Um, and uh, the case study uh, here in the United States is the Native American languages, hundreds of languages spoken uh, at the time of European contact. Uh, now, the caller mentioned one of perhaps only two languages that have robust speech communities left. Uh, Navajo and Navajo. Well, uh, I would have said Ojibwe. Uh, there are 30 mm -hmm. to 40,000 speakers of Ojibwe still left in Minnesota and other places. Uh, the Siouan languages are actually not doing so well. I have a graduate student right now who's working on uh, Hidatsa, which is a Siouan language spoken uh, by only a few elders in uh, a reservation in North Dakota. Did any artificial language ever take off? Apart from Esperanto, a number of other attempts have been have been made, I know. Have any of them become sort of established in communities? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, Esperanto probably had the best success of anything, and there are people who still speak it, and if you go online, you'll find lots of stuff in Esperanto, but uh, nothing has really been successful. Mm -hmm. um, the other one that comes to mind as an artificial language that has a fair uh, number of followers is Klingon. Yes. <laughs> um, have you learned any Klingon? Chutvach. Uh, <laughs> which I don't remember what it means, but I believe it's insulting, and that's a good guess. Everything sounds insulting. Exactly. <laughs> it was invented by a, a, a guy who had studied linguistics, actually, at the Mark University Mark of California Kandian. in Santa that's Cruz. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he, he put a it, bunch of stuff in. Does there. it have full linguistic property? Is it? Does it? I actually don't know. Do all the it uh, does. There's the even a Klingon language? language institute that works on uh, adding vocabulary, really? discussing, working with the grammar. They've translated Gilgamesh, the epic of Gilgamesh, into Klingon, and uh, Shakespeare, Hamlet, I believe, has already come out, or it might have been Macbeth. Well, how do we say to be or not to be? Yeah. I have no idea. Hey, Klingon. Yeah. They send me brochures, and I enjoy looking at the brochures, but uh, I'm not giving them money. Challenge to our listeners: There are some. Klingon speakers out there, how do you say to be or not to be in Klingon? We uh, await uh, your elucidation of this very important question uh, as we return right after this. And back to Frederick Schwink and Jason Merchant. This program took an unusual or an unexpected direction, uh, which I am much enjoying. I trust you guys are as well. Uh, we're sort of testing out various languages. 591-7200, and here is another caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Milton, gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to ask you to talk about the invention of the Cyrillic alphabet for the Slavic languages. Yes. And that opens a broader question, really, namely all the different notational systems, including the ones that are ideographic rather than phonemic. Um, yeah, the, the invention of writing systems, in particular Cyrillic, is part of a whole complex of alphabet 
and this is an alphabet, alphabet inventions uh, linked to a specific religious purpose, namely uh, the transmission of uh, the Bible. Uh, the Armenian alphabet was devised for that reason, the uh, Slavic, uh, Cyrillic, and Glagolitic both for that reason, um, the Gothic alphabet, uh, which is not the one that you find in books that look antique and old-fashioned, it's a separate alphabet based on Greek for the Gothic language, all um, brought about for the purpose of transmitting a particular text in the language of the people um, at a time before um, Latin and Greek became so sacred that you couldn't translate things. Um, Yes, yeah, Cyrillic was, of course, developed by two um, Orthodox missionaries, uh, Cyril and Methodius, who were Greek uh, Orthodox and who adapted the Greek uh, uh, alphabet to the needs of, uh, of uh, the language of Old Church Slavonic the, that they were uh, translating into. Um, they came, added some letters and adjusted some other ones, but it's, it's roughly based on the Greek alphabet, much like the Latin alphabet itself. Uh, did the Slavic people not have one of their own when Cyril and Methodius arrived? There? That's right. They did not. Oh, okay. So they were they they were hearing the sounds, but they they had to make up the alphabet, right? Right. They were preliterate. I see. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe. We thank you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. And quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah. The German historian Oswald Spengler says the most important linguistic in the West was sometime between 800 and 1,000 when pronouns were introduced. Ancient Latin, for instance, didn't have pronouns, so when Caesar said, vini, vidi, vici, he just said, came, saw, conquered, without a, a pronoun, not an I came, I saw. Whereas all the modern Western languages do have pronouns, and the Eastern languages, like Romanian, even though it's based on Latin, were left out of this development. Is he onto something, and is this emblematic of the character of the West? Uh, I don't, uh, I would be sus suspicious of that, given that Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Greek, Russian, Polish, uh, and many other languages also are like Latin in allowing you to omit the pronoun in simple sentences. Latin, of course, did have pronouns, ego, tu, ille, um, that it could use, but in an emphatic function, in exactly the way they are used in modern Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and Greek. Uh, French, uh, English, German are not languages of this type, uh, and that did develop uh, later. We have Rodolfo in La Boheme singing, Qui son, son poeta. That's right. Who yeah. am I? I am a poet, but there is no I. There's no need for it. Um, if you've got grammatical forms, which of course Latin and uh, many of these older European languages had, that clearly expresses first person, second person, whatever, yeah. you don't actually need the pronoun, um, unless you want to e really emphasize something. Our thanks to the caller. Listen to this email. Um, what percentage of languages use genders? Where did this convention come from, and what purposes served beyond seemingly pointless complication? <laughs> when will these benighted people wise up and just use the? Um, that, okay, as far as percentages, I have absolutely no idea. Um, many languages in Western Europe, also in Africa and other parts of the world, do use gender systems. Where it comes about, well, there are a number of theories going back to particularly the 19th century. Um, Jacob Grimm, for example, felt that... that That's the Grimm of Grimm's fairy tales. Of Grimm's fairy tales. One of the two brothers. I, I know him better for his work as a linguist. Yeah. Um, felt that primitive peoples... Um, looked at the world around them and gave personality to things and trees mm -hmm. and rocks and so forth, and they were therefore masculine or feminine or whatever else. Um, most people these days don't really follow that so much. They believe that um, systems might arise where, for example, you distinguish between male, female, and um, uh, some kind of neuter or animate, inanimate. 
and that uh, these categories end up being extended to uh, words that have, for example, similar endings or similar beginnings to words that are for actual feminines or masculines or neuters until the system takes over. You get some very curious uh, assignments, however. Why should war be feminine, as it is in French? Um, the ending, uh, the phonological structure of it. Uh, in German, it's der Krieg, so it's masculine uh -huh. there. Of course, you get strange things in German uh, that our students have real problems with, where um, we talk about masculine and feminine and neuter, and yet the word for um, a girl is neuter, das Mädchen. Das Mädchen, yeah. And uh, the, the word weib, which is now no longer used, is also uh, wife. The word wife uh, in Old English, weif, is also a neuter. Uh -huh. So that's a bit odd. It could drive you crazy if you're trying to acquire the language. It's very difficult. And, it's and, and it makes the native speakers uh, always amused at your mistakes. Quite often, um, although they tend to be understanding, they expect you to get it wrong. <laughs> Interesting question uh, here. As dominant languages such as English overtake others, what do your guests expect language evolution to be over the next 500 to 1,000 years? Will we end up, will we, uh, end up with very few languages? I would add will we end up with new ones? Do we see new languages emerging even now? Sure, of course, language uh, evolution doesn't stop. Um, uh, I don't speak the same way that my grandparents uh, spoke uh, and speak. Um, language change as uh, acquisition happens um, and as new peoples learn different languages. Uh, I would say that you know, as a linguist, as a professional linguist, I'd be very sad to see the diversity of languages uh, diminish in any way because it's the bread and butter of what we study. If there was only one language, there wouldn't be no need for uh, linguists. Uh, it would be very hard uh, to study. The, the imperial languages are not just English. Chinese has the same role you, you were suggesting. Right, and uh, uh, Spanish in much of the world, too. Yeah. Um, but there are some questions about how language change itself may change that we can't really answer yet. Um, up until fairly recently, we had no way of hearing what our grandparents, how our grandparents spoke, but now we do. But from the printed record, we know that English has changed very little since, even since Elizabethan times, don't we? It's, the pronunciation has changed a fair amount. The vocabulary has mm -hmm. changed uh, very much so. And there are new Englishes. I mean, think of the English spoken in India. I mean, that's a native yeah. language for many people. Uh, it sounds different to our ears, but it's not in any way different from the dialect spoken in Scotland or in California. It's just a new variety of English. Yeah. South it, Africa. It would be interesting thing. if we actually had recordings from the 18th century, the 17th century. How would we hear English from then? How different would it be for us? Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, barring massive civilization or change of civilization, 200 years from now, people will be able to watch a movie. I want, to I want to offer you a language that I love, though I don't understand it at all. I just love the sound of it. This is number four on our list, I say to those in our audience. You will recognize it instantly. It is indeed poetry by a great poet of this tradition. Pushkin, Biedny Sadnik, Peterburgская повесть, 1833 год, предисловие. Происшествия, описанные всей повести, основаны на истине. Подробности наводнения заимствованы из тогдашних журналов. Любопытные могут справиться с известием, составленным В.Н. Берхом. Вступление. На берегу пустынных волн стоял он дум великих полн и вдаль глядел. Пред ним широко река неслася. Бедный челн по ней стремился одиноко. По мшистым топким берегам 
чернели избы здесь и там, Приют убогого чухонца, И лес неведомый лучам, В тумане спрятанного солнца Кругом шумел. Очень красивый и тоже трудный язык, русский язык. Russian. That was very, it's a beautiful but also difficult language. Russian. Yes, uh, why is it so difficult? I once tried to learn a little bit of it. In fact, my mother tried to teach me some Russian. She was a native Russian speaker. And I was enthusiastic for it when I was a kid. Uh, and I learned the Cyrillic alphabet and pushed ahead a little bit. But I could never really pick any of it up. I didn't have enough practice. I didn't have enough exposure. She talked to me in English and Yiddish rather than in <laughs> Russian. But she knew Russian. Well, I'm sure you would have done a great job if you'd stuck with it. Russian is Indo-European. It's not too sure far from, yeah. uh, from English. And uh, English speakers uh, historically have a, a good chance of acquiring uh, native-like uh, abilities. Yeah, but the, the verbal system is pretty tricky. Well, uh, that, that was always my bane. Now we're going to test Frederick, or possibly both Frederick and Jason, with number six on our list. And I want an exact translation of the following. Heute bereite ich ein Bauernfrühstück zu. Es geht ganz einfach. Ich schneide Kartoffeln in Scheiben und Schinken in Würfel, gebe sie in eine Pfanne und brate sie etwa fünf Minuten lang an. Dann gebe ich ein Ei hinzu. Dazu serviere ich eingelegte Gurken. Here the actual test is less of understanding as of recalling all the things were said. It was uh, how to prepare a peasant's or farmer's breakfast, and it included, uh, let's see, cutting, um, yeah, potatoes, potatoes uh, cutting ham into little cubes and <laughs> frying them up for five minutes, I think it was. Then there was um, adding an egg. An egg. There was eingelegte Gurken, I believe she said, which yeah. is uh, uh, pickles, which sounds rather nasty to me. <laughs> I thought it sounded rather intriguing. Um, and... We're going to pause the last round of commercials, then right back to the phones and to the email. Uh, it is not unusual these days to sometimes conceive that the French are a little odd. Uh, and certainly this email points it up. Uh, the listener asks, when is the French Imperial Language Commission going to fix their number 99? And we puzzled over that. And of course, 99 in French is 499. And literally translated, that is what? Four twenties, ten, nine. Four twenties, ten, and a nine. Which adds up. We take them all together, they come to 99. But it's a very odd way to do it. You almost get the feeling that uh, the French intend to make things more difficult than they should be. Uh, that wouldn't be the first time, would it? No. <laughs> I don't know what the history of that number system is. Uh, but Well, the whole Katzrevent uh, system in the language in itself is an impediment in Right. It makes it rather difficult to count, uh, though the French pick it up because they do it from uh, from the dawn of consciousness, so right. to speak. And once it's there, even if it's somewhat arbitrary, it's there and yeah. it's something to be yeah. maintained. But but uh, Jason was telling us that the Swiss speaking French have got an alternative. Right. They've uh, regularized the number system and they say novante for 90, which is what you'd expect given... Yeah. Uh, Quarante, cinquante, sixante, septante, and well, oquante for the for eighty. Makes good sense. Is it true that the French really have an imperial commission, or at least have a language commission, imperial or otherwise? Isn't it can't really be imperial? Who resist uh, the entry of any English la uh, words into their language? Uh, they've definitely got uh, the. It's the French Academy. Uh, it's the Academy, Academy itself. 
Um, yeah. And there is uh, strong regulation. Um, there was a case just a couple of years ago of a university that was offering English courses and did the ad in English and was uh, then penalized and fined because they had not given it in French as well. You have to have the French, definitely. But in um, French, they use certain English phrases routinely. Le smoking, the smoking jacket, le weekend. Some are acceptable, but there's a constant fight against uh, the, the many words that do come yeah. into the language. And uh, partly that's because people want to use those words. It's, it's, it's legislation from above. And on to another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, hello. Um, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine before my Latin class today, and we were talking about the uh, German verb voxen. And as soon as I mentioned it, he immediately started thinking about the possible Greek root of the word, which got me thinking. I know there are some words in German, uh, language I'm learning now, with, that come from Latin, uh, like the word for cheese, for example, queso from quesum. And I was just wondering, to what extent did the classical languages like Greek and Latin uh, affect uh, German, modern German as we have it today, but I mean words that were like introduced uh, back in the ancient days, the days of the Germania, things like that. That's probably mine. Um... Well, there are uh, obviously many, many words uh, from the early days. Uh, we mentioned street, which German Straße, uh, wine, wine, uh, things like that. So generally cultural artifacts. Uh, once Christianity comes into the German-speaking area, we have a lot of uh, words borrowed either directly from Latin um, or from Greek via Gothic even. We have Pfingsten, which is Pentecost, uh, so ultimately from Greek. Um, and then we have a large number of words which are loan translations. So you'll have something like compassion, Compasio, uh, where each element is translated into German mit light. So a huge amount of influence um, from the earliest days on. Is German particularly uh, unusual in those long combinatory words, words which you know, one really has to work over sometimes if one isn't a native speaker or a native reader? Um, no, other languages do that as well. Um, within the Germanic languages, if you go to um, even some Scandinavian, but uh, particularly Dutch, Mm -hmm. uh, use these compound words. And we have a lot of them ourselves, although we don't always write them together. Um, a pretzel seller, a Philadelphia pretzel seller. That's really one word, but we write it as three. No, but it's three words. How do you define it as three words? It's a man who sells pretzels in Philadelphia. Exactly. Um, but it is one word for that man, although we write it with multiple uh, words, at least on the page. The first article of mine that was ever translated into German in English is attitude change and foreign policy in the Cold War era. Uh, rather a long title, rather a dreary title. Comes out, Attitude Veränderung und Außenpolitik in der Ära des Kalten Krieges. Yeah. Uh, and Attitude Veränderung is one word, and Kalten Krieges, Cold War, is one word. And no, that's actually written as two words. Not in the title that I saw. Um, well, if, if it's standard German, it should have been Der Kalte Krieg des Kalten Kriegs, so two well, words. Well, maybe it was Außenpolitik. Außenpolitik yeah. is foreign policy, which we make two words and yes. they make one. Yeah. And that article ran, I would say, one-third longer in terms of total uh, page consumption than did the original. Well, there's a question of how concise the translation was or how yeah. uh, well the translation went. Um, frequently, I've seen things in German being somewhat shorter than the, really? uh, than the English, yeah. yeah. Uh, five nine one seven two double zero. The number we want to work in a few more calls. There's very little time left, but here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Milt. Yes, sir. I'm enjoying your program very much, and I have one just easy, simple question. 
A Finnish language doesn't sound familiar to me to any other type of language I've ever heard of. I'll hang up and listen to your explanation. All right, sir. We've already touched upon that. It remains a kind of a mystery, doesn't it? Well, Finnish is one of the Finno-Ugric languages, uh, the most closely related ones being Estonian across the bay and uh, Hungarian down in Hungary. But it's related to a whole bunch of languages on the other side of the Urals. Uh, It's part of a broader language family known as Uralic. Uh, spoken languages like Nenets, spoken all the way in the middle of Siberia. So, so can they find the proto-language or reconstruct it? Sure, absolutely. It's a well-studied language. Well, then family. it's not mysterious. No, well, no more than Indo-European is. Basque remains the great mystery. Basque, and there's a couple other language isolates running around the, out there. Which are those? Uh, Burushaski is a language spoken in the Himalayas. No one's ever found a... Burushaski? Yeah. Uh, no one's ever found it to be related to anything else. No, Etruscan, if it's not related to uh, Basque, of course. Is yeah. anyone actually speaking Etruscan these days? No, no, no. It's, it's died out long ago. The Romans killed it off. Well, apparently, or at least they, it, it was superseded by Latin. And to another caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good. Now count from one to five. Hindo three Karakoik. That's Irish. Quick. Yeah, Gaelic. That is pure Gaelic. Yeah, it hasn't been described as a language as more a disease of the throat. <laughs> That's I Dutch. just want to ask one question about Latin. Our Latin teacher told us that Navis Longa was big ship, and in the Irish translation for the word ship, they translated it as long, L-O-N-G, and our teacher reckoned that one of the monks translating it had forgotten that putting the adjective before the noun that he translated it as. I just wonder, is there much mistranslation of language? Huge amounts, huge amounts. Even if you're not using babblefish. Oh, yes. Uh, I've taught translation classes, and I've uh, had the opportunity many times to work through translations for various reasons, and uh, the amount of e- the number of errors that come in are, are uh, in, uh, immense. Okay. We thank you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. Well, time is almost out. This has been a delight. I've enjoyed it very much. What's going on in serious linguistic and structural linguistic scholarship these days? What are the major questions? Uh, well, people are still worrying uh, very much about acquisition, how children manage to acquire it, mm-hmm. uh, what the the, uh, the syntax and semantics look like, uh, what uh, the brain, uh, how the brain represents these structures, um, how they change over time, and uh, whether or not uh, it's uh, uh, unique uh, or and uh, innate to uh, humans. And within historical, uh, the historical Indo-European field, uh, such questions as what the exact relationships are between the languages uh, in question and uh, their relationships and also to other language families if um, they are related to, for example, Semitic, Indo-European Semitic, Indo-European Uralic. So it keeps us busy. There's so much to do, as there is in all good scholarly fields. What are you working on exactly right now? I'm working on a monograph about the nature of the Germanic proto-language and whether it might represent an Mm -hmm. archaic Indo-European, somewhat like Hittite. And? Uh, I'm working on case systems. I'm trying to figure out the relation between uh, ergative cases like uh, the kinds found in Basque and some Australian languages and Hindi and uh, Georgian to uh, nominative accusative systems like uh, Latin and English. You used one word I don't recognize. Ergative cases. What's an ergative? Uh, The ergative case is a case that marks uh, only subjects of transitive verbs. Uh, Unlike a Latin system where nominative marks subjects of transitive and intransitive verbs in an ergative system like Basque or Eskimo, uh, there's a case that just marks the subject of transitive verbs, and another case called the absolutive that marks the subjects of intransitives uh, as well as the objects of transitives. 
I'm happy to say I don't know what in the world you're talking about, which shows that you've got really a specialized uh, set of skills in a very specialized area, uh, and long may it flourish. Our guests have been Frederick Schwink and Jason Merchant, both professors of linguistics, though Frederick Schwink officially is professor of German language and literature at the University of Illinois. Jason Merchant, professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago.